know, when it comes to God and living for him, would it be fair this morning to say that you are all in? Not partway in, not considering jumping in, but when it comes to God and really living for God, would it be fair as an estimation to say, I'm all in? 100% I'm all in. Well, that's kind of the idea, if you notice from the reading of our text this morning, of what God is sort of putting out a call for. He's putting out an invitation, an exhortation through Paul's words here to us to call us to a place of total dedication, of complete commitment to him and to his will. And perhaps today is a good opportunity to reflect and maybe even respond if that's what God is speaking to you about this morning. Now, the background as we come into Romans chapter 12 is important because we have studied through these last 11 chapters together. And these first 11 chapters have been speaking to us in Romans all about what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. It has spoken to us for 11 chapters over some 300 verses describing how though we are all sinful before God, we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God, we miss the mark, we fail and sin against God. And as a result of that, God being righteous, we're guilty before a holy God. We deserve condemnation, eternal damnation, yet God in his love has initiated a plan of salvation. He's initiated a plan of restoration and reconciliation through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can be forgiven of any sin and all sin, that we can be cleansed and made new, that we can have the hope of eternal life, that we can have access directly to God and have a relationship with him in our lives. And thus far, all of the emphasis has been upon all that God has accomplished for us. All that God offers to us, all that God supplies to us, everything that God is even now doing within us, if we're a follower of Jesus, and more than that, even everything he still has planned for us eternally. All the emphasis has been upon what God has done, and it's at this point now in the letter, chapter 12, that there's now a transition to call us as a child of God to a proper response. It's a place where Paul now turns the corner to show us how to walk worthy of the incredible calling that we've received in Jesus to give us instruction how to live godly in Christ Jesus. That if we've accepted Christ and experienced this salvation, well, what does that mean for us? Paul now comes to this place where he says, listen, sincere belief in Christ should always translate into sincere behavior that's becoming of a follower of Christ. So there's now this transition to the practical part of the letter beginning in chapter 12 to the end. The remaining chapters deal with telling us and instructing us how to live the Christian life. And he'll deal with a number of different topics and issues we'll see, but the focus now becomes very practical, saying, okay, now let's put feet upon this and let's follow Jesus, let's walk with Jesus. And Paul begins to speak to us about the practicality of how to live the Christian life. Notice here he begins with this exhortation, verse 1 of chapter 12, by simply saying, I beseech you, therefore, and that's the idea, reflecting back, on all 11 chapters, in light of all that God has done, I beseech you, therefore, 
brethren, he says, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So Paul begins this exhortation, this section of practical Christian living now, by calling us, you can see, to reflect back, as I just said, upon all the mercy that God has shown us as the basis that's the basis to then motivate us to want to respond and to live for God he says look you have to be willing to reflect upon all that God has done if you want a good basis and a motivator to actually live a life that's pleasing to God he makes this appeal now of personal dedication to God but notice he makes the appeal in light of the mercies of God shown to us. He says, it's in light of the mercies of God that have been shown to you in salvation, considering that all the grace, all the mercy God has shown to us in consideration of all God has kindly done for you. He says, therefore, I beseech you in light of that. I beseech you in light of considering what God has done to offer your life. Now that word beseech simply means to plead, to urge, it's a term that means to, to beg someone in a loving way out of concern for them. So Paul the Apostle, out of love for fellow Christians, he says, would you come along with me in this? You know, almost, to me, it's somewhat interesting whenever I read this to realize here is a Christian begging fellow Christians to serve God. It almost seems kind of out of place. He's saying, I'm begging you. Would you serve God with me? I'm begging you. Would you be all in? Would you fully dedicate, consecrate, commit everything to God? I'm begging you. I'm urging you. It almost seems like, why would you have to urge Christians to do that? Why would you have to urge people who've experienced the salvation of God to give themselves fully to God? But yet the Spirit of God prompts Paul. He says, in light of what God has done, let us respond together. Let's respond to what he's done for us out of appropriate appreciation. So he's pleading now for this full-on commitment and dedication of our life. And you know, as I look at this, to me, it's, it's a great reminder that the highest motivator for personal dedication unto God is not fear. It's not guilt. It's not laying rules and regulations upon people saying, if you want to be a Christian... Then you have to do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. And here's our, you know, criterion and list. And if you want to be a full on dedicated follower, it has nothing to do with that. It's not making people fear the wrath of God or making people feel guilt because you're not fully dead. It has not. Paul shows us here the highest motivation as a basis for personal dedication to God is discovering and experiencing for yourself the mercy that God has shown to you and realizing what he's done for you as a wretched, rotten person. And he says, the more you begin to grasp and understand, which is why he spent 11 chapters saying, look, when you come to the place and realize your filthiness, when you see the blackness of your own soul and the wretch that you really are in the light of your creator and you realize the love and the grace and the mercy and the faithfulness he's shown you, he says, nobody will have to really tell you serve God because there'll be a tremendous motivator that will urge and will prompt you because of the mercies of God 
And here Paul uses that as the basis and gives now this strong call for a person who's experienced such to truly submit, to give over their life to God in a complete dedication, a full-on commitment. He says the way to do that, verse 1 here, look at it with me, he says, is that we should present our bodies, he says, to God a living sacrifice. That word present there means to yield or to offer it. It describes to put at someone else's disposal for their use to put at someone else's disposal for their service, for their purpose. And he tells us what we are to present and put at God's disposal for his use. And he says, our body. And the implication there of the term our body is, is all of your being. Spirit, soul, and body, that's all, that's all enclosed within the body. It, it's all, so when he says present your body to God, he's talking about every part of your life, every faculty, every ounce of energy, strength, your service, your purpose, everything that you have. And the body, humanly, is really the physical instrument that God has given to us on this earth to be able to express ourselves. Uh, this body, this human shell that God gives us for a time on this physical planet that we dwell within, the true you, that which is eternal, your spirit, your soul, that which will be lasting, God gives you a body to house that. This body is the apparatus in this physical life to be able to experience life, to taste things, to touch things, to smell things, to hear things, to be able to say things and express things to other people. The body is, is a, a vessel, a conduit, an apparatus to express ourselves and to experience life. So therefore, God asks us to yield that to him while we're in this life that it might be used for his purposes. Paul said back in Romans 6, do not present your members, referring to the members of your body, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves now of righteousness. For just as you used to present your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness leading to more unlawlessness, he says, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Paul, speaking of the body in the same way in 1 Corinthians 6, says this, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, he says, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See, the Bible teaches us that the day of our conversion, when we were saved, when we accept Jesus Christ as Savior and we're born again spiritually, as the Bible speaks of, on that day of your spiritual conversion, your spirit is redeemed. The spirit of God comes in and your dead spirit is made alive in Christ. And so now you have fellowship with him and the Holy Spirit takes up residence within. So your spirit is redeemed when you're saved. But now God says, but yet I still want full use of your body, of that instrument, of that apparatus that I've given to you to experience life and to express yourself with that redeemed spirit within you, God says, I want full use of all of your life. And he wants us to make a commitment of full dedication of our body, of every part of our being unto him, presenting ourselves to him to be used to fulfill his purposes, his plan, his glory in life. Again, like a, a servant would present themselves to a master. 
If you're bought with a price, if you were purchased as a slave and you have a master and you're a servant, listen, a, a, a slave or servant has no rights of their own. They exist for a purpose and that's to fulfill the wishes, the desires, the purposes, the ambitions of their master. So they present themselves to their master to do their master's bidding. They don't debate what the master's plan is or say, well, I, I understand you want to do that, but I was kind of thinking that I'm entitled to do this. No, you really, you're, um, you're my master. I, what are your purposes? What do you want me to say? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to accomplish? It's the same idea, I think, as well, of presenting yourself. If, if you, uh, you know, have a law enforcement background or a military background, it's the same idea. If you have a commanding officer, you present yourself to your commanding officer. And you present yourself to receive their orders. You present yourself for duty. And according to what they want and how they direct, you present yourself to fulfill their authoritative directives and commands. And this is the idea here. And he says, as we present ourselves, notice the text, verse 1, he says, we present our bodies, he says, like a living sacrifice, it says there in verse 1. This, in imagery here, the idea of a sacrifice, Paul was reflecting upon the Old Testament sacrifices as they would bring animals to the altar. And as they would bring their sacrifices to the altar in the Old Testament, those animals, remember, they were put to death. They lost their lives in becoming a sacrifice. That's how they became a sacrifice. They lost their own life in order to become a sacrifice. They were put upon the fire of the altar and oftentimes they were totally consumed in the fire, especially in the burnt offering or the burnt sacrifice. The entirety of the animal was completely consumed. It was completely swallowed up and given over. Every part and portion, nothing was left of it. And this is the idea here, the imagery the Bible is giving to us in regards to presenting our life to God. That we're putting ourselves upon the altar and saying, Lord, like that burnt sacrifice, all of me, every part of me, every ounce of me, I'm willing to lose every part of my life that I might become an offering, a sacrifice unto you as I offer myself. But notice the text as well. We're to present and offer ourselves as a sacrifice. But notice the term, because this is much different than an Old Testament sacrifice. He says, a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Now, the implication is God desires for us, here's the concept, to die to ourself that we might live unto God. To die to the self-life. To die to our own life. To make a sacrifice of our life, would you agree, is much harder to give. In some ways, it may truly be, and not that I want to sign up for it, easier to die for Jesus than to live for Jesus. And he says the sacrifice that God is looking for is the sacrifice of our life. That we would sacrifice our life, that we would let go of our life and offer ourselves to God, living in a way so that we surrender our will, our life, our ideas, so that we can fulfill God's will and the life that God has intended for us. So we're giving up our life as an offering so that we might fulfill God's will and God's life. And in so doing, really, we're only emulating the example of Jesus, who the Bible says that we call ourselves followers of. We're followers of Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus entered into this world. And, and what was Jesus' key statement? Nevertheless, not my will, but 
Father, your will be done. Jesus died to himself as a sacrifice that he might live under the will of God. So as followers of Jesus, we're just to be continually dying to self, the self-life, so that we as well may live unto God and may live unto the will of God. Jesus spoke of this in regards to pursuing him as a follower. Remember, Jesus declared this. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul's going to say later in Romans 14, 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Paul makes that radical statement in Galatians 2, where in Galatians 2, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, yes, I still live, but he says, but he says I, I live in a way where I'm dead to self so that the life of Christ may be lived out through me. Again, Paul was still living, but Paul says, but I, wait a minute, Paul, you're still living. Yeah, my self-life. Paul says, I die daily. And the Christian life is to be an experience whereby we are willing to allow the self-life, which is very strong, very strong, self-will, and we die to the self-life in such a way that the life of Christ may be lived out through us, presenting our life as a sacrifice, living for God rather than living for yourself. And that's much easier said than done. Oh, I'm living for God. Are you really? Am I really? It's easy to use Christian lingo. It's easy to say all the right phrases, but when the Spirit of God searches your heart and says, but... but are you really living for are you, are you living for me as much as you're often living for yourself? And here Paul calls us to this place of of consecration, of commitment, of sacrificing our life unto God to let him utilize it. See, the truth is, if we were to all be honest, it is much, much easier to receive Jesus' salvation to receive forgiveness of sins, to receive eternal life. It's much easier to receive forgiveness and eternal life than it is to then surrender your life and live in devotion to the Lord. It doesn't take a whole lot of convincing to me in, in many ways to say, hey, do you want your sins forgiven? Sure, free, absolutely, I'll take that. Do you want the hope of eternal life? Absolutely. Much rather go to heaven than burn in hell forever. But then the Lord says, okay, I appreciate you letting me be my, your Savior. But can we talk about this Lordship thing? Now that you've accepted my forgiveness and received eternal life, uh, the, the, the term Lord means that you live for me. It means that you follow me. You know, Peter makes one of the most humorous statements in the book of Acts where the Lord tells him as he's receiving this vision, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter not sure what this he says not so Lord look those two terms don't go together not so and Lord you can't say not so and Lord if he's Lord you never say not so you say yes so Lord whatever you say if I don't agree with it I don't understand it Lord I am yours my rights are gone you're my master that's what lordship is 
And here we realize it is much easier to receive his salvation than it is to surrender our life and to truly live for him. But yet this is what we're being called to in the word of God as a loving response and appreciation that we would choose to live unto God. And the question again for us to ask ourselves this morning is, is have you come to that place in your life? Are you willing to come to that place in your life? Where you before God in humility muster up the grace to say, Lord, here I am. My eyes, Lord, my eyes, they're yours. Lord, help me to see things the way you see things. Help me not to look at people the way that I look at people, but to look at people through the lens that you would look at people. Lord, here's my mouth. Use it to say what you want to say today. And Lord, here's my mouth. Keep it shut to not say the things that I would say that you would never say in that given situation. Lord, here's my hands. Use them to help, to serve, to minister. Lord, here's my feet. Take me where you want to take me. Wherever you want to go, Lord, my feet are yours. Just lead me. Let's go there. Lord, here's my energy. Here's my talents. Lord, here's my time. Here's my mind. Lord, Lord, it's, it's all yours. I give my body. I give myself unto you for your purposes. Notice as Paul saying this in verse 1, he also tells us here, present your bodies a living sacrifice. He then says, verse 1, holy and acceptable to God. Now, does that describe holy and acceptable to God? Does that describe how we should present our lives to God as a living sacrifice? Or is that a, a reference to how God views it? when we present our life as a living sacrifice. In other words, does this speak further of what God desires that we present him a holy and acceptable life? Or is this referring to the response of how God feels when we present our life to him as a sacrifice? I think it could be a reference to either or to both. The Old Testament sacrifices had to be approved. They had to be acceptable in their condition, animals were offered and they had to be without spot or blemish, remember? They had to be offered without defects. You couldn't give to God your leftovers after you took the best from your flock. You didn't then just give God whatever leftovers you had. You were to offer to God your best. That was what made those sacrifices acceptable unto God. And in the same way, I think we ought to present our bodies to God in, in holiness, and in purity, if we're going to present him a body, I would hope that we present him a body that's holy and, and undefiled and useful to offer ourselves to God in a way that's acceptable to him, uh, offering God the best of our lives, the absolute best that we can give, giving him full use of our life and our body now, while it's got everything possible to give to him. Again, and here's what I mean by that. Not after we take our body and we trash it, and abuse it and use it for all kinds of things that destroy it and tear it apart and, and, and then afterwards we just we kind of give God what's left at the end listen no I think God says listen I want your best I want you at your absolute best especially for you if you're a young person this morning can I encourage you listen give God your strength give him your energy give him your best now don't spend your life for yourself and, and use your life and abuse it and say, okay, well, I'm going to do all that first and then I'll give God, I'll, then I'll give it over to him. No, listen, give it to God now 
all the energy, all the vibrancy, all the, the talent, the potential, what you have. Give him your life now. Let him use your life now when it's at its absolute best with vibrancy and energy and strength and potential and talent in a generation that needs that. Don't wait and give God your life after you've used it and abused it for all the purposes the world would have you use it for. Give God your best of your time, your energy, all of us. Again, are we ever going to present to God a life that's flawless and perfect? Of course not. And many of us have potentially you know, used and abused aspects of our life, but that's nothing I'm proud of. That's nothing we're proud of. That Okay, Lord, this is all I got left, but I'll give you what I got left. And look, if that's the case, that's fine still because Jesus with five loaves and two fish did a whole lot of miraculous stuff. You know, not that long ago, one time before somebody said to me, in relation to you know teaching the Bible, they said, well, you got your five loaves and two fish ready and then you kind of present it to the Lord and he breaks it and bless Lord, here's all I got. I prepared, I studied it. Here's five loaves and two fish. I said, you know, I used to think that, that what I prepared and offered to God was the five loaves and two fish. I said, my, my mentality has changed. I'm the five loaves and the two fish. <laughs> Lord, this, this is all I am. I'm kind of fishy and you know, there's, there's not much, but here I am, Lord, and, and take this and break it and bless it and use it some. And that's okay. God will take whatever we'll give to him. But if we have the ability, certainly we do have control of choosing to offer the God our best or offer to God the leftovers and the ruins. Don't give God the leftovers of your life. Give him the best. Give him the best. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the other things will be added. Seeking first, prioritizing, offering God your vessel at its absolute best. Second Timothy 2, Paul says to us that we would offer to God a vessel for honor, sanctified, set apart, useful for the master and prepared for every good work. So I think a holy and acceptable presentation of our life to God is one part. But I also think those terms holy and acceptable could indicate how God views it when we do present our life to him. That when we offer our life to God as a sacrifice and we say, all right, Lord, I've been holding back. And, and so, Lord, I want to I dedicate myself unto you. Lord, I want to present myself to you in a commitment in a way I haven't. I think that when we come to a place and we do that, I think from God's perspective, God says that is a beautiful, holy, pleasing, acceptable sacrifice to me. And I think that when we present ourselves to God to serve God in that way, God views that as a very pleasing thing. He sees that just like a holy, beautiful sacrifice of a life given to him. And despite what little we may think we have to offer or all the blemishes and defects, oh Lord, here I am, but I'm pretty blemished and I'm pretty defective. Listen, I tell you this, nonetheless, our acceptableness is found in Jesus Christ. We're accepted in the beloved. The blood of Jesus makes us acceptable to bring our life to God. And God is always willing to accept any life that will be brought to him to say, Lord, here I give my life unto you. And he's always well pleased. It brings great pleasure to his heart, I think. He sees it acceptable and holy and pleasing when we offer ourselves to him. And remember, God is not nearly as interested in your ability as he is your availability. And we may say, oh, you know, I have such a problem. I mean, I don't, I don't really have much to offer. I don't know if I have something to offer to God. The bigger problem isn't do I have something to offer to God. The bigger problem typically is, is the struggle with holding back myself from God. 
because of human selfishness and greed and and self-will and and all those other things that consume us in this world. It's not that I have something to offer. You do. You have yourself. You give yourself to God. God can anoint and bless and do all the rest and work through your life and bring into it the fulfillment of his plans. Look how he ends verse 1 by saying there, he says, as we do this, he says, which is your, verse 1, reasonable service? Now there again, it's a reference to the service of the priesthood from the temple. As Paul's thinking about sacrifices, those spiritual services they rendered to God as an act of worship and obedience to please God, to honor him, to offer ourselves entirely. Paul says, to do this, I beseech you, present your body to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And Paul says, which is reasonable. It's a reason. He's saying, it's a rational thing to do. He's saying, I'm not being illogical here, am I? (laughs) He says, this is a very logical request that God would make of us that I would urge and exhort you to do. It's a rational response in light of what God has accomplished for us. He says, it's very reasonable that we would respond to him that we would want to serve him out of gratitude to be responsive in that way. Some of your translations render that phrase there, it is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, it's a form of worship when we present our life, when we present ourself unto God for his disposal and uses. He says that's that's an act or a form of worship. Would you agree? It is very easy to attend and participate in a worship meeting. It's a whole other thing the rest of the week to live in a worshipful way, a dedicated life all week long until the next meeting comes around. See, it's very easy for me to attend a worship meeting, to sing the songs, to be cooperative, to go along with, with a worship meeting and participate in a worship meeting, but it's a whole other thing to live a dedicated life, to live a worshipful life whereby we let our life be fruitful and serving God in a way that we say that is my act of worship. I think it is much more worshipful to serve Jesus all day Monday than it is to sing for a few minutes on Sunday or to sit through a Bible study and say, yeah, I can tolerate a few more minutes. I think he's almost done on a Sunday. Anybody can do that. But how about living for Jesus in your job, in your home, trying to walk in the Spirit all week long, saying, Lord, is the way I'm speaking pleasing you? Is what I'm doing honoring you? Lord, how can I be servant-hearted and fruitful and, and to let our life be used of God? That's, that's worship. It's a life of worship, of serving the Lord. Look how Paul goes on, verse 2. He says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good an acceptable and perfect will of God. So here Paul begins verse 2 to give us both, notice, a negative command and a positive command to help us to continually live a dedicated life to God and His will. Maybe you say, hey, you know what? The Lord's speaking to me. I want to I live dedicated to God. And I want to live dedicated to God every day. And I want to pursue God's will for my life. Well, Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Let me help you with that. Verse 2, he gives here both a negative and positive command. First, the negative command, he says, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, there's something we must allow not to happen. And that is that we would not allow ourselves to be conformed, he says, to this world. That word conform there is a term that speaks of being pressured from the outside 
to fit into a mold or to be pushed into a particular pattern. One translator renders this, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. And see, that's just a reality of what we battle with every day as we live in this world, even as a Christian, is there will always be pressure, persuasion against us to live the way that the world system is operating. And the world system, let me help, is completely opposed, if you haven't noticed, to the ways of God, to the will of God. And there's a reason for that. The Bible even tells us, 1 John chapter 5 says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So listen, you must understand, it's critical. This is serious to understand that there is an unseen current that is driving everything that is happening in this world. There's an unseen demonic current that is pushing its way and pervading its way through the system of this fallen world ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. So the devil is actively operating quite subtly and influencing people's ways of thinking. He's influencing the ideals of this world system. He's influencing the value system of the world in which we live in. He's influencing the way that the world does things, the standards of the world. The devil is influencing these things in an unseen way. That is why you see the pattern and the blueprint that you do for the world and the way that the world in general does things. Why does the world have the value system that it does? Because the devil is driving it to have the value system that it holds. Why does the world have those ideals towards this or, or what's important in life and what's not? Why does the world have the standards it does towards morality or towards sex or towards marriages? Well, because the devil is manipulating and driving in an unseen current the system of this world. And that is why the Bible says we must, as Christians, be careful that we don't let that pressure conform us and squeeze us into the system of the world. That we have to guard against that. One man said, don't be a chameleon who takes its colors from its surroundings just so that you safely blend in. And listen, I don't care if you're 13 years old, you're 16 years old, you're 18 years old, you're 30 or you're 48 years old. Everybody still becomes a coward in that department sometimes. Where we take our colors like a chameleon from our surroundings because we want to blend in because we can't find the courage and the fortitude that the Holy Spirit alone can give to us to have the boldness to say, you know what, I'm not ashamed. I don't embrace those ideals. That's not my value system. So yes, I am going to be different. I'm not going to blend in with everyone else, but I serve a different master. I'm a citizen of heaven of another kingdom. And therefore, I'm going to be somewhat different. And God wants us to be aware of this reality that will be a constant, continuous pressure where the world system is going to try and squeeze you into its mold. It's going to try and persuade you to think how it thinks and to follow its direction. And, and, and it's going to constantly be pushing against you. So the Bible says you have to be aware of that. And you've got to be on guard against it because those influences will always be there. So he says, don't be conformed to the world. But then he gives the positive command, but be transformed, notice verse 2, be transformed instead by the renewing of your mind. So there's something we should allow. That's a passive thing. Allow yourself to be transformed. That term there that Paul uses there is where we get our English word today, metamorphosis. 
It's a term that describes a transformation that happens from the inside outward that produces helpful, productive changes. Probably one of the most obvious examples to us from science class is the transformation of a caterpillar into a butterfly. You have this you know, ugly little caterpillar, and I'm sorry if you like caterpillars, but for sake of the illustration, stick with me here. You have this ugly little caterpillar that what does it do? It, you know, it, it, it crawls around on the ground, it moves slow, it's limited because it's just a little caterpillar. But then it undergoes this transformation, this metamorphosis whereby it is transformed from the inside outward where it goes from crawling around to being able to fly. And it begins to soar on a much higher plane. And it's becoming much more beautiful in its appearance. It's unhindered. So there's this internal influence that produces radical changes in the creature from the inside out. Not the outside pressing you into a mold, but from the inside out there's change and transformation, but it happens from within. And see, God says to us, my plan is that every believer undergo a spiritual metamorphosis, a spiritual transformation where from the inside out we are being changed from who we naturally are by birth to who Jesus wants us to become. Interesting, this same term, transformed, we find in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Listen to what it says there. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the Bible says that there should be this continuous spiritual transformation happening in the life of a child of God. And the way it happens, God says, is as we're just beholding Jesus, spending time with Jesus. Again, not trying to change ourselves, not self-help. Well, I can fix it. I can kick it. I can change. I can, listen, I've turned over a new leaf multiple times. It is filthy, filthy, filthy. It never works. Never works. But what works is when you begin to behold Jesus and you begin to look upon Jesus and just spend time with Jesus, it says we are being transformed. It doesn't say we've been transformed. It doesn't say we change and transform ourselves. It says we're being transformed as we're beholding the Lord. We're being transformed by the Spirit of the Lord. Again, when you look into a mirror, you look into a mirror and then you respond to what you see. The problem so often with many is the mirror people look into is they look into themselves. Oh, woe is me, I'm this and I'm that. And they look at it and they're so self-focused and we can become so consumed with ourselves and we think, well, that's what I got to do. I got to look into myself and that's where I'm going to find the answer. Or, or we look to the world around us and we take our cues from what we see as we look into the mirror of the world and then we take our cues. The Bible says, no, just look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look at Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Let him be the mirror that you look into. And what you see is you look into the face of Jesus and just worship him and love him and are in his presence. Let that be what you respond to. And he says that when we are doing that, beholding the glory of the Lord, it says then the spirit of God begins to transform us from the inside out. We put ourselves in a place spiritually where the Spirit of God can begin to work in our lives in a powerful way. So again, God's plan is not for us to be pressured from without, but to be changed from within, to be transformed from the inside. And this morning, is that happening? This morning, are, are you a, a conformer or a transformer? And it's not a joke, but if you can think about transformers from years ago. 
What are you? What am I? I want to be somebody who's being transformed. I spent too many years, and it's too easy to be a coward and be conformed to the world. I want to be transformed. I need to be transformed. I want this continuous process of the transforming power of the Spirit happening in my life. And what's one of the ways it happens? Well, look at verse 2. He goes on to say, by the renewing of your mind. This is one of the ways that transformation happens, by the renewing of our minds. See, our minds are naturally corrupted due to sin and the fallen nature. And then add into that, if you would, all the continuous pollution and defilement being poured into our minds through what we see and observe and hear every day of our lives. Through exposure to television and our interactions with people and movies we watch and music we hear and social media and internet and commercials and advertising, our minds are being inundated with pollution, with the ways of the world, the ideals of the world, the value systems of the world, the ideas of other people. And our mind and thinking can become quite a defiled processing component where we begin to be capable of lots of error because our imagination, our mindset, and our way of thinking becomes all distorted in its views. So God says, therefore, what's necessary is your mind needs to be renewed constantly. There needs to be a constant, continuous renewing, a renovation and cleansing of the mind whereby it's renewed to what is right, to think right rather than to think wrong, to think healthy rather than unhealthy, to see clearly rather than unclearly. And how is our mind renewed? Let me simplify it. By putting your face in the Word of God and letting the truth of this book wash over and renew your mind. And as I read God's Word, the Bible says it's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training and instruction in righteousness. And I need that because a lot of times I start thinking wrong and then I open up the Word of God and as I'm opening the Word of God and reading, God says, you're wrong. I know you feel strongly about that, but you're, you're thinking wrong. And not only does God then expose that I'm wrong, He says, and I want to show you how to correct that. Let me show you the right way to think about that. Let me show you my ideal for that. Let me instruct you so that you walk in my way rather than your own way. And God's Word, it renews our mind. And it keeps our mind being continually refreshed. And the benefit, He says finally, is that you may prove, verse 2, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen, here's the benefit of this. As if we needed a benefit to do what we should do anyway. He says, I beseech you, brethren, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Present yourself to God. Hold and acceptable. It's reasonable. And don't be conformed to the world. But allow yourself to be transformed from the inside out by God's Spirit as you walk with Jesus and look at Jesus. As your mind is being renewed by the Word of God. And he says the benefit is when that happens, you'll be able more easily to approve and prove out what the will of God is for your life. I'm sure you've never thought about that before, right? You've never said, what's God's will for my life? Well, God's saying here, listen, as we are doing these very things, as we make this full-on dedication, he says that will be a critical component to help you be able to more easily see and understand what the will of God is. It allows us to be in a place where God will more easily be able to direct us into understanding his will because he writes his will on the fleshly tablet of our hearts. I think the terms Paul uses here are terms to describe like adjectives the will of God, that God's will is good. God's got a good life for you. Way better than anything you could come up with for yourself. 
God's will is acceptable. When you find God's will for your life and follow that, it's going to be very acceptable. It's going to be very pleasing. It's going to be satisfying and fulfilling. The Bible says, I delight to do your will, O God. Don't say I despise to do your will. I delight to do your will, O God. And you're going to find God's will is perfect in a sense. It's, it's completing and fulfilling. It's an exact fit for you because God knows you best. He knows you even better than you know yourself because he created you and knit you together in your mother's womb. And he knows what's best for your life and his will will be the most satisfying thing you can find. You know, a lot of times we often say, I want to know God's will for my life. I want to know God's will for my life. But sometimes I wonder if the only reason we so want to know God's will for our life is so that we can consider and decide if we want to follow God's will for our life. And God says, look, let's do this a different way. He puts on the front end, let's do this a different way. He says, how about this? How about you choose to be all in? How about you choose to dedicate yourself fully to me and say, Lord, I am all in. From now on, I am all in. I'm dedicating myself to you. I'm fully giving myself to you, presenting myself to you. I want to live for you. And God says, all right, when you do that, then I'll show you what my will is for your life. Because then I know you want to follow it. I know you want to live for it. Hey, this morning, perhaps the Spirit of God has been calling you, speaking to you to respond. Can I encourage you as we sing a final song? Don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. Respond to what God is showing you. Amen? Let's stand together.